From historical locations found on a map to the lesser known areas found maybe even in your own hometown, history leaves shadows that people in the present can still see. Let's find out their stories together on this episode of Historically Haunted. Welcome to Historically Haunted. My name is Ariel. Today we will be going off to Scotland to explore the hauntings that are found in the city of Edinburgh and the famous castle there. I hope that you all have had a good few weeks since we last talked. My life has taken a lot of curveballs just in the last week, but I'm kind of just hanging on for the ride and we'll see what happens. Today is a super exciting day because, drum roll please... I have my first two Patreon members. I would like to introduce to you Jim Featherstone and Selena. Thank you both so much for your support of the show. It means the world to me. If anyone else is interested in joining my Patreon page, I have two tiers. The first tier is the Thunderbird tier, and that is a dollar a month. And that gets you all these accesses to a few mini bonus episodes that I'm going to be posting every month on the show. And then if you join the Mothman tier of $3 or more a month, you get my mini bonus episodes, plus you get a full bonus episode once a month. I have the link to my Patreon page down below, and I'm working hard on it to get it all set up and ready to go. COVID-19 has kind of messed up my plans a bit, but I will be right back on track as soon as I can, and I will be there with more content soon. So again, thank you so much to Jim and Selena. Yay! Just a little bit more business news before we get started. I live in a place that has fire danger and the electric company has decided to cut our power every time it gets hot and windy because that's the best solution. So right now I am scrambling to get as many episodes done as I can before that happens. I hope to have them all up so that way they will be preloaded and ready to go so I won't disappear completely from the podcast world but there's no guarantees because it's supposed to be like 100 degrees tomorrow and I'm only halfway through the next episode right now but I'm working hard on it so uh however this will affect my internet world so if I suddenly go MIA from like my emails my Facebook Instagram and so forth I promise nothing's wrong I will be back don't worry it's just that I literally when we have no power, we have no Wi-Fi, and the LTE coverage sucks because the towers also go down for all of our cell phones. It is very frustrating, but I can't do anything about it, so oh well, and I just want to let everyone know that if I suddenly look like I disappeared, I'm not, I promise, I'll be back, everything is fine. And as always, don't forget to rate and review the show on iTunes. It helps me get out there and get more listeners added to our lovely little family of historically haunted people. So, um... Add me on Facebook also and Twitter and Instagram. The links are all down below. And yeah, that's pretty much all the business news I had. So excited about my new Patreon members. Thank you guys again. I'm just so excited. And without further ado, let's start it off with our monstrous moment. Stories of encounters from strange beasts lurking deep in the forests, on snowy mountaintops, and in dark caves have been told throughout the generations, turning to legend. But what if I told you that many of these creatures are still spotted today? I call these monstrous moments, and I invite you to listen to this week's monstrous encounter. Mm-hmm. 
since today's episode takes us to Scotland, I cannot go to Scotland and not talk about one of the most famous monsters in the world. That's right, I'm talking about the Loch Ness Monster, or more affectionately called Nessie. This monstrous yet shy creature supposedly lives in the Loch Ness in Scotland. The Loch Ness is a deep and dark body of fresh water that is in the Scotland Highlands. It is the second largest and the second deepest loch in Scotland. Its deepest point is 230 meters or 755 feet. It contains more water than all the lakes in England and Wales combined. The Loch Ness Monster is described as having a snake-like head and a long green-colored body with its humps on its back. It swims through the water kind of like a giant eel. The monster Nessie is known all over the world, but how in the world did this legend get started? It might surprise some of you to find out that the first recorded sighting of Nessie was in 565 AD. The tale begins on August 22, 565 AD, when St. Columba was on a trip to Scotland to spread Christianity throughout the land. That day, he reached the banks of the River Ness. He stopped to contemplate the best way to get across the river. He discovered there was a group of men who were burying their friend who had just died after being attacked by a large river monster, as they described it. St. Columba decided to help, and supposedly he brought the man back to life. The group of men were awestruck, and they began to warn him about the river monster lurking in the River Ness. But... St. Columba decided to send one of his accompanying monks to swim across the river and bring back a small boat that was on the other side so that they could all cross together. The monk began to swim across and all his splashing around alerted the monster, who began to swim toward him. Everyone started to yell at the monk to warn him, but St. Columba walked straight to the water's edge and in a commanding voice shouted, You will go no further. Do not touch that man. Leave at once. And the monster allegedly stopped in its tracks and swam away. And that was the first official sighting of the Loch Ness Monster. Not at all what I was expecting for the first sighting of the Nessie. Sightings have only increased since this time. I found a great source for sightings of the Loch Ness Monster. It's called LochNessSightings.com. On the website, I discovered that there are so many sightings of the Loch Ness Monster, it's kind of insane. The official sightings count is at 1,117 to date. So, what are the theories behind Nessie? Most people try to come up with the logical explanations for what people are seeing out in the lock, but some of them are just as strange as the idea of a giant sea serpent hiding in the water. One idea is that people are mistaking Nessie for giant lake sturgeons. They're a type of fish, but it's pretty lame when you look at a picture of one or when you see one in person. They can get huge though, weighing in at several hundred pounds, they do look quite reptilian, so that might explain some of the sightings. Giant logs floating in the water is another one, but as someone who grew up going to high mountain lakes to fish, uh, I definitely know the difference between a giant resurfacing tree and a swimming, splashing around monster. I would think that the locals in the area would also know the difference, but tourists on the other hand, they might not, so that might be an illogical explanation for some of the sightings. Another thing that some people claim as an explanation is that people are mistaking the shape of Nessie with the reflections of the mountains. I guess that could happen on a windy day when the lake is really choppy, but I mean, come on. Personally, I don't know how someone could mistake that. I mean, all you have to do is look at the, the way the water's moving and move your eyes two inches up and you'll see that that looks exactly like the shape of the mountain. But 
Oh well, maybe some people are mistaking that as Nessie. Giant river eels have also been attributed to the Nessie stories, and I could see that personally. That one's the more likely, but I don't know if, <laughs> if eels can go around the water with their heads up in the air like that famous Nessie photo. That one's still a little weird to me. Bird wakes is another common explanation. What scientists think might happen is that people see birds far off in the distance and they see the wake and they see them treading in the water and think the object they are seeing is much bigger in size because there's nothing to scale. I guess that one might be a good explanation for a lot of these sightings. The fact that the Loch Ness is directly over a fault line might explain the strange ripples that are seen out in the water that a lot of people attribute to Nessie swimming about underneath the water. One of the last explanations is that it could have been the trunk of an elephant. Wait, what? An elephant in Scotland? Oh, that's right. Apparently in Scotland during the 1930s, there was an uptick in sightings of Nessie at the same time circuses were traveling around the area. Despite their big size, elephants love to swim. So many circuses let their elephants play in the water between shows. Many believe that the neck of Nessie was actually the trunk of an elephant as it swam below the water. As far as photo evidence goes, none is more famous than a black and white photo of what is claimed to be Nessie's neck and the hump of her back sticking out of the water. Many have tried to debunk the photo, but the legend still stands strong. The town near the lake has embraced the legend. They have a Nessie Research Center and a museum. They also have a Loch Ness Monster excursions where you can take a boat tour of the lake and all while looking for Nessie. I, for one, love the idea of the Loch Ness Monster, and I love the idea that Nessie exists. I believe in her, just like I believe in Bigfoot. I would love to add my name to the many people who have had a monstrous encounter with the Loch Ness Monster. Did you know that rating and reviewing your favorite podcast shows on iTunes is one of the best ways to help others find the show? Also, sharing the podcast with your friends and family will help spread the word that Historically Haunted is out there and waiting to be listened to. Please go to my website, historicallyhaunted.net, for more ways to support the show, like links to my Patreon page and more. Over our history, humans have used several techniques to try to contact the dead. Today, ghost hunters use various technologies to try to record proof of the paranormal. I got curious as to what is inside these paranormal toolkits, so come with me as I open it up and see what's inside. Paranormal Toolkit, we will be discussing the use of dowsing rods in the paranormal world. While it's not exactly truly scientific evidence, it's still really cool and a lot of paranormal investigators love to use them today. Dowsing rods have been used since ancient Egyptian times. We think this because there is a special, like, I think it's an engraving or a painting of some kind on a wall in one of the tombs. Anyway, it's of a person holding what appears to be a Y-shaped dowsing rod. There isn't any written record to go along with this, so no one can 100% know for sure that's what he's doing. Other than that Egyptian painting showing the use in ancient times, people think the more modern-day dowsing started in Germany in the 16th century. At the time, it was used mostly to find precious metals underground. But then in 1518, the church decided it was too similar to witchcraft, so they banned it. People continued to practice dowsing anyway, though, just because the church banned it. 
So there were a few different reasons why people were using dowsing rods. Dowsing was used to find precious metals, oil, water, and sometimes used as a form of divination to contact spirits. In 1619, John Locke, a philosopher, believed in dowsing rods. The words of John Locke and his beliefs on how government was supposed to be run were used by the United States founding fathers to shape the Declaration of Independence and the United States Constitution. I bring this up to show you that even though the church tried to ban the use of dowsing rods, even someone as influential as John Locke believed that it was real. The practice of dowsing was brought to America and more commonly used to find water. People started to call this practice water witching, but over time the use of the rods to contact spirits and answer deep-seated questions became more common. The thought of how dowsing rods worked is that the rods are using your energy and the energy in the area around you to move the rods. There are different types of rods people use. Some rods are wooden Y-shaped branches, normally cut from witch hazel, willow, or peach tree. These are more of the old school rods compared to today's use of the L-shaped rods. The idea behind the Y-shaped rod is that you hold onto it uh, at the fork, so one fork in each hand, and the single end of the branch is facing outward. When you pass over the water source, it is believed that that will draw energy from the rod and therefore the rod bends down. An L-shaped rod is described as a pair of simple L-shaped metal rods. You hold the metal rods, one in each hand, out in front of you. The idea for finding water is that you walk slow-paced across the land and when the wires cross inwards, it means that there is water underneath you. Water witches are still used today to find good places to drill for wells. The thought about how you find water with these sticks or rods is that humans instinctively need to find water for survival. It is the primal instinct coming out of us that we now have pushed down into our subconscious since water is so easy for most people to access today. Therefore, without knowing it, your body is telling you, connecting with the energy under the ground, that, hey, there's water down here. And that's supposedly what bends the rods or crosses the rods over. For using rods to communicate with spirits, it's recommended that you introduce yourself to the room politely, explain what you are doing and what the rods are. Then it is recommended by experienced dowsers to clear your mind and relax your body. Try to keep your elbows tucked in next to your sides. Keep your hands relaxed so that you don't subconsciously move the rods yourself. Some experts recommend to walk across the room and when you find a big energy field, the rods will cross. It is theorized that when this happens, you have found the spiritual energy that you cannot see with the naked eye. Then it is recommended that you reset the rods by lowering the rods and then pick them back up and ask permission again if you can talk with the spirit. Tell them to cross the rods for yes or swing them out for no. If it's a yes, you can go ahead and ask your questions. If it's a no, politely thank them for their time and move on into a different room because let's face it, nobody likes being asked a bunch of questions if you're not in the mood to talk. Personally, I have found that dowsing rods are becoming quite a trend and they are being recommended as a good tool to add to your paranormal toolkit. <laughs> 
Hey guys, I just wanted to take a quick time out and ask you a question. Did you know that one in 10 people have dyslexia? You might even have it and not know it. Dyslexia is a learning disability that affects reading, spelling, and sometimes math, but it has nothing to do with low intelligence. I know because Einstein himself had it. Oh, and I have it too. Many people go undiagnosed, but it is important that you know the signs so that you can get help right away. The faster you know your child has it, the faster you can start doing things differently so that they can start thriving in school. And if you're an adult who also might have it, remember, you are never too old to ask for help. Please go to dyslexia.org to find out more or my website, historicallyhaunted.net, and click on the Information About Dyslexia tab. Okay, back to the show. On episode 11, we discovered the history of the Tower of London. On episode 16, we went to the Louvre and learned about its history of being a palace before becoming a world-famous art museum. While doing this podcast, I have discovered one thing. I am slowly becoming obsessed with castles. Something about how these fortresses have stood the test of time, and while the battles raged beneath them, they stood strong. For today's episode, we will be discovering the history and ghostly activity of the most sought-after castle in the United Kingdom. Edinburgh Castle. and looming Edinburgh Castle is perched high on top of volcanic rock, towering over the city below. Just looking up at this castle today while being surrounded by a modern city is daunting, but imagine what it would have looked like almost 900 years ago, when there were nothing but small streets and peasant dwelling. The rock that the castle stands on today has been the center of many battles, 23 recorded sieges to be exact. For he who controlled the rock controlled Scotland. The rock that the castle's on today was formed from a volcano that erupted over 340 million years ago. Ever since the first humans arrived, they realized that having a fortress on top of the rock was a perfect place to hold power over the land. Historians believe that the rock, now known as Castle Rock, had its first human inhabitants in 900 BC. The Romans built a settlement called Den Eden. It was thriving until an invasion from the Anglias in 638 AD. And I am trying my best to pronounce these names correctly, so if I say them wrong, I'm really sorry. I'm trying. <laughs> this is how the rock got its English name Edinburgh, or also called Castle Rock. The new town of Edinburgh grew from the settlement on top of the rock. Houses began to spring up in an area that today is called Lawn Market. This formed the first street of the town named Royal Mile. It was named that because this was the main road to get to the castle and royalty would use it to travel to and from its gates. During the Middle Ages, the fortress on top of the rock became the main castle of Scotland's royalty, and it was the headquarters of the Sheriff of Edinburgh. The Scottish stationed military troops and established the royal gun train. Also, the Scots' crown jewels were kept safe within its walls. When King David I took power, he decided that Castle Rock would be the perfect place to build a real castle. In 1130, he ordered a new fortress to be built. He added high walls around the new main castle, and he dedicated a chapel to his late mother, Queen Margaret. 
Today, it is still standing, and it is one of the oldest buildings left in Edinburgh. The Scots had made a brilliant new castle that had high walls right up against a steep cliff. You would think that it would be impenetrable and that no one would dare try to take it. But so many people wanted the castle that it became a hot spot for bloody wars and hostile family takeovers. This castle and the royal families of England and Scotland have had some real drama that always got lots of people killed in its wake. The first takeover of this castle was done by Edward I in March of 1296 AD. Edward I got a nickname called the Hammer of the Scots, and for good reason. King Edward I wanted the Castle Rock to be ruled by his English armies. He sent his army with the largest and most deadly catapult ever made. They named it Warwolf. Warwolf was the largest catapult made at the time, and it needed 30 wagons to carry it, and it could hurl 300-pound missiles. The battle raged for three days, but in the end, King Edward I reigned victorious. It was a humiliating defeat for the Scots, for after the English took the castle, the English army remained inside its walls for 18 years. It wasn't until 1313 AD when a man named Thomas Randolph, Earl of Moray, decided to take back the castle from the British. King Edward I had just died and Thomas knew that England was weak during the time of transition to a new king and it was the perfect time to take back the castle. Thomas had learned of a secret pathway, one he could take up the north cliff to reach the lowest part of the castle wall. He took a crew of 30 Scotsmen up the path to breach the castle, but they didn't go in guns blazing. They went in in stealth mode. The group climbed over the castle wall and silently took out the 200 English soldiers that were inside the castle, and in the end, they were able to retake the entire structure. The castle remained in the Scottish hands for 20 more years after this, and then the castle flip-flopped owners for the next 30 years. In 1334, the British took it back, and then in 1342, the Scots recaptured the castle. David II rebuilt the castle and he named a new tower after himself, calling it David's Tower. The Scots were able to hold the castle for a good while after the last take back. We're going to jump ahead in time to the 1400s to take a look at James II of Scotland, who at only the age of six became king after the death of his father, who was murdered by a rival branch of the Stuarts clan. His mother, who was rightfully worried for her young son's safety since he just became king overnight, ordered him to be kept safe inside Edinburgh Castle. The young king also had two advisors to help him rule Scotland. While he was kept safe from physical harm, psychological harm, not so much. See, the two men in charge of the young king were Sir William Crichton and Alexander Livingston. They had growing fears of the Douglas clan. The Douglas clan was the main noble family in Scotland who had had a 300-year power grip on the country. Due to the king being so young, the two advisors were afraid that the Douglas clan would have more influence than they did over the young king. When King James II of Scotland turned 10 years old, the two young heads of the Douglas clan were young as well. William Douglas the 6th Earl of Douglas, was 16 years old. In November 1440, William and his younger brother were invited to dinner at the castle. At the end of the dinner, the servants brought out a severed head of a black bull. During this time period, a black bull head was the symbol of death. It was a signal for the guards to grab the two young boys and drag them outside the courtyard where they were given a quick mock trial and they were both beheaded. It was a message to the Douglas clan to not try to mess with the young king. Today, this incident is known as the Black Dinner. 
The author of Game of Thrones used this actual incident in history as one of the inspirations for his red wedding scene. Now, most people who went through something like watching your friends get beheaded at only age 10 would make them not like killing, maybe. But at the same time, this time period was not exactly a time to have counselors to help deal with boyhood traumas. So James II grew up to love war, and his favorite toy was a cannon. He had the whole castle surrounded by cannons. He even got a famously large cannon as a wedding present, and many wars followed during his reign. By the early 1500s, Scotland and England were connected by marriage. King James V of Scotland was the brother-in-law to King Henry VIII of England. The family harmony didn't last long. King Henry VIII and James V went to war with each other almost immediately after the wedding. King James V was killed in a battle with Henry VIII's army on September 9th, 1513, and that left his six-day-old daughter to take over the throne. This six-day-old queen would later become known as Mary, Queen of Scots. As soon as James V was killed, King Henry VIII demanded that James's six-day-old baby girl be married to his young son, Edward. As you might imagine, this did not sit too well with the Scots, and they flat-out refused the demand. This sent King Henry VIII into a rage. In 1544, he sent an army on ships to Edinburgh Harbor with instructions for them to invade the city, burn it down, and kill all who stand in their way, and then bring Mary back to England unharmed. On the first day of the attack, the English army stormed the shoreline and burned down the whole city of Edinburgh while killing hundreds of people along the way. This left any survivors running for the castle to hide within its walls. The siege lasted eight long years, and in the end, the English were not able to take the castle or marry Queen of Scots. By 1633, Charles I became the last Scottish monarch to live in the castle. His reign lasted until 1650 when he was executed by Oliver Cromwell, a British military leader. There was a lot going on during this time. There were civil wars breaking out all over the country in England and in Scotland. There were lots of conflicts over different religions. People were fleeing to the New World for religious freedom. This led to the American Revolutionary War, the French Revolutionary War, and then, of course, the Napoleonic Wars. Also, between 1649 and 1650, there was a mass hysteria about witches. This caused a massive witch hunt in Scotland that led to 300 accused witches to be burned at the stake on the esplanade below the castle. Most of these so-called witches were lower-class peasants. The esplanade was not new to burning witches at the stake. There was one famous woman who was killed this way in 1537. Her name was Janet Douglas, Lady of Glames. She was accused of using witchcraft in an attempt to murder King James V. Let's all remember that the Douglas clan and the noble family were still at odds with each other, so I'm sure that's really what all this was about. In the 18th century, new barracks and walls were added for protection against foreign adversaries, like Napoleon, dictator of France. In 1757, the castle vaults were turned into a prison. It held thousands of military prisoners from the Seven Years' War, American Revolution, and Napoleonic Wars. The strange part about this prison was that the men could make and sell goods to the villagers. This would be a way for them to have money to be able to buy products like pipe tobacco and paper for writing letters to family. But remember, if you were an American, at this time you were technically a trader, so they didn't get any special stuff. So they weren't allowed to sell goods, they weren't allowed to buy pipe tobacco, they weren't allowed writing materials or newspapers. Just a fun little fact on that one. 
By the time World War I came, necessity for castles and military strongholds had disappeared. However, that did not keep the town of Edinburgh from getting bombed in World War I. The town got blasted by bombs dropped by two German zeppelins, but lucky for the castle, it did not get a direct hit. It also survived World War II. Today, the castle is a museum, and you can find artifacts such as the crown jewels of Scotland along with the Stone of Destiny. Now, you all know that when something has a title like that, the Stone of Destiny, <laughs> I just have to find out more about it. So, the Stone of Destiny is thought to be the original stone that Jacob used as a pillow at Bethel in the Bible. According to Jewish legend, at the time, the stone became a pedestal for the Ark of the Covenant that was housed in the Temple of Jerusalem. After this, the stone was supposedly brought to Egypt by King Gathalus. After the defeat of the Egyptian army, a descendant of Gathalus was able to bring the stone to Ireland. It was used to crown the King of Ireland, but then it was moved after the Scottish invasion of Ireland. After King Edward I conquered Scotland, King Edward stole the stone and moved it to Westminster Abbey in London. He then built a chair around the stone and used it as a coronation chair and a royal throne. It has been used to crown every single British king and queen ever since. Finally, in 1996, 700 years after the stone was stolen from them, it was returned to the Scots and it is now on display in the Castle Museum. They will only take it out when it is time to crown a new king or queen at Westminster. Other than that, the stone is back home for good. Sorry about that rabbit hole jump, but I just couldn't exist talking about that stone. The other famous thing that the castle is known for is the Festival Tattoo. It is basically a gigantic Scottish pride military parade and fireworks show. It has been a tradition at the castle for 70 years. I was looking up show tickets and they seem to do it almost every evening, except Sundays and certain days. Speaking of traditions, they also fire a cannon every single day except for Sundays, Christmas Day, and Good Friday. They have done this since 1861. It was used to help the shipping keep time in the harbor, but today it is still kept on as a tradition. Just looking at pictures of Edinburgh today make me want to go there so badly. It is gorgeous. But it's hard to forget that the place is seeped in bloody wars, family takeovers, and plagues. It is not hard to understand why this place has so many ghost stories. One thing that kept popping up during my research of the castle in the town of Edinburgh is that people think this is the most haunted place in all of Scotland, and some even go so far as to say this is the most haunted place in the world. Now that is a bold claim, but after all the historical research I did, I can see why people might think that way. With all the death that occurred in the castle, a royal palace, to the dark alleyways and tunnels under the city, it's easy to imagine ghosts roaming around all of them. The history is so much that there was no way I could cover the entire thing in just one episode. There are so many layers to the city, and I will try to uncover a bit more of that as we discuss the hauntings. Loki, stop it, buddy. If you hear noise behind me, it's my cat, and he's playing with a toy fish behind me. I'm sorry about that. Let me get him. Hang on. For those of you who don't know, I have two cats. Uh, one, his name is Thor, and the other one's Loki. They are brothers, and... I love them dearly and they're indoor cats and they don't play too often. So when they do, I kind of don't 
really mess with them. So if you hear meowing behind me, sorry about that. It's my cat. Okay, where was I? Ah, yes. Okay, so the thing is there was so much to cover that there was no way I could do it in one episode. So I'm going to try to uncover more history as we discuss the hauntings of the town of Edinburgh. If you're not driving while listening to this podcast, I encourage you to go to Google right now and type in Edinburgh, Scotland and see the pictures of the town and the castle to better understand what I'm talking about. For those of you who can't look it up, I'm going to try my best to explain to you how the town looks. Uh, The castle itself sounds high above what is now a modern day city, but the buildings, uh, for the most part, are hundreds if not thousands of years old. And it's kind of a cool, eclectic mix. So if you were able to see the pictures of this amazing city, you now know the vast scope of the old buildings mixed with new. And also the, what I like to call layered effect of the buildings, meaning they go from kind of low to high around the castle itself. It's very cool. And it totally makes me think of every old school Disney movie or medieval times movie, anything like that. Just amazing. For our first ghost story, we are going to go to the Royal Mile. Found at the very bottom of the Royal Mile is the Palace of Holyrood House. Most people just call it the Holyrood Palace. Holyrood means Holy Cross. Holyrood Palace is one of the last original structures still standing on the Royal Mile. Today, it is Queen Elizabeth's official Scottish home. Before the palace was built, the original structure was an abbey. There is this weird legend attached to how the abbey got its name. According to the legend, in 1128, King David I was out on a hunting expedition when an aggressive stag knocked him from his horse. He jumped to his feet to try to fight him off. The stag charged again, but disappeared just as he was about to attack the king. The king discovered a cross in his hand. He took it as a sign from God and built the abbey to pay homage to the divine intervention that saved his life. 370 years later, King James IV decided to build a palace next to the abbey. Ever since then, many monarchs have lived in it, including Queen Mary of Scots. One of the ghosts found at the palace is that of David Rizzio. David Rizzio began as Queen Mary's secretary, but he soon turned into her lover. Mary was married to Henry Lord Donnelly in 1565 and quickly grew bored of him because she was way too smart for him. He was all looks and she was all brain. It didn't take long for Donnelly to find out that Mary was cheating on him, and he arranged for him to be assassinated. During a dinner Mary was having with some of her staff on March 9th, 1566, a group of assassins led by Henry burst into the dining room and dragged Rizzio out into another room. They then stabbed him 56 times. Today, when people enter the room, they complain of feeling extremely uneasy, having unexplainable and sudden headaches, and feeling icy cold spots. There is a blood stain on the floor that no matter how much they try to clean it, it never disappears. In the 1980s, a security guard was on duty when he walked through the room as a usual check. He suddenly felt an unbelievable and unexplainable chill in the room. He was so cold he was visibly shivering. At the same time, he began to hear footsteps in the room with him, and of course, no one was there but him. There is also a gray lady. She has been seen wandering the palace rooms and hallways. Many believe that this woman is Queen Mary herself looking for her long-lost lover. Up next, we have the Greyfriars Kirkyard Cemetery. This cemetery has been known to be haunted for centuries. However, it has experienced a darker presence since 1999, poltergeist activity. 
Many tourists have experienced unexplainable fainting spells, parts of the body going numb for no reason, sudden sickness, visible scratch marks and bruises, burns, and also some have been reported being pushed to the ground. On a more extreme note, some tourists have even claimed that the poltergeist has broken their bones. Broken fingers is a common one at this cemetery, apparently. In 2006, the Scotsman, a newspaper, wrote about these attacks. In the article, it said that there had been 450 documented poltergeist attacks. 140 people had collapsed while in the graveyard. There was even speculation that the poltergeist was responsible for a local psychic's death. Today, people call it the Mackenzie poltergeist because in 1999, a homeless man was looking for a place to sleep when he broke into George Mackenzie's tomb. And that is when the poltergeist activity began. Mackenzie is known today as Bloody Mackenzie. The reason he got this nickname was due to his persecution of the Presbyterian followers in the 17th century. Mackenzie locked 1,200 prisoners into a prison that became part of the graveyard due to the fact that so many died and were buried there. The prison conditions were so bad that only 257 prisoners came out alive. Due to Mackenzie being so evil and no activity was reported until the homeless man broke into his tomb, people are attributing the poltergeist activity to Bloody Mackenzie. However, there are plenty of kind spirits in this graveyard as well. Many people have seen ghosts of monks wandering the graveyard, women in white gowns that drift throughout, and also a ghost of a dog can be found there. Known as the Greyfriars Bobby, after the passing of his owner, the dog stood watch over his master's plot until the dog's death 14 years later. He was buried near his owner, and he is now memorialized by a bronze statue near their grave sites. Fun fact, many people believe that J.K. Rowling got the name Thomas Riddle from the name of a tombstone in the cemetery, for it is believed that she wrote some of her Harry Potter books down the street at the Elephant House Cafe. During medieval times, the city of Edinburgh was the most densely populated city in all of Scotland. The poor were forced to live in underground tenements. These were used for 350 years. The underground slums had cramped living quarters. They were filthy and disease and death were rampant. These underground tenements were forgotten about for a time until they were discovered again in the 1980s. They since have been excavated, and today the city lets groups run historical and paranormal tours. They have found that they were used for housing, shops, and storage. Ever since they have begun tours, many strange things have happened. In the area used as a cobbler's shop, there is a ghost known as the Mad Woman. People believe that she is the ghost of a woman who had either lost a child at birth or at a very young age. Her apparition has been seen screaming and sobbing, and she also pushes and trips people who enter the room when she does not want visitors. Another prominent ghost in the tunnel is a man they call Mr. Boots. This ghost has been seen many times, and one distinguishing feature is that he has big, black, shiny leather boots. He has also been heard stomping loudly up and down the tunnels. Tour guides believe that he was a mean landlord who charged way too much money for rent. Now it is believed that he is trying to scare away the trespassers, aka the tourists, out of his tunnels for good. A few blocks away is the famous Mary King's Close, and for all those who don't know, a close is a Scots name for an alleyway. Let me explain that an alleyway in America is pretty different from an alleyway in Scotland. An alleyway in Scotland is 
just wide enough to barely fit a horse and cart to go through, and sometimes they're even narrower. I always picture big alleyways being from America because we everything is just bigger here. I don't know exactly why that is. Anyway, the Mary King's Close area was a series of narrow, winding streets where people lived in crowded tenements that were up to seven stories tall. They had extremely unhealthy living conditions. There was no sewer and no running water. When the plague hit, thousands died. After the plague, people continued to live there until the area was emptied out, closed, and demolished in the 19th century. Newer buildings were built on top, and also a brand new street was added on the top of what used to be the top of the storied buildings. It's kind of weird. I hope you are following me here. It's like there used to be an alleyway that you could see up to the sky. Imagine the top of that becoming the new street level. Everything else underneath was demolished and then reduced to what now looks like a tunnel. They were completely forgotten about, but they were recently rediscovered in the 1990s. Many of the spirits found at Mary King's Close were believed to be plague victims. Of the 10,000 people who died in the city of Edinburgh, many died in Mary King's Close due to the close quarter living and unhealthy living conditions. Tour guides have reported guests feeling an immense sadness as they go through the tunnels and they burst into tears. Some guests have ran away from fright. Some even faint. There is a tall woman in black seen drifting throughout the tunnels. People have reported time slips where they walk into a room and the room is suddenly filled with dead bodies of plague victims that are stacked up high. Mediums have attributed this to the rooms being used as makeshift morgues during the outbreak. Guests have also reported suddenly smelling death and decay. The most famous ghost is a girl named Annie. A Japanese film crew went to visit and take a tour. One lady in the group claimed to be a psychic, and she said she saw a little girl dressed in rags crying. The crew decided to leave a little doll as a sign of respect. Ever since then, many other ghost hunters and ghost tour participants have followed suit in leaving little gifts for Annie and other ghosts in the area, such as dolls, letters, cards, and flowers. Now it is said that Annie is no longer sad and plays with her little shrine. Now that I have told you about just some of the haunts found in the city of Edinburgh, it's time to move on up the Royal Mile to the castle. The most prominent ghost on the grounds is a headless drummer boy. According to legend, in 1296, this drummer boy warned the Scots of an English invasion. It is said that he was the first to die in battle, and he was slipped from ear to ear by an English sword. Today, people claim to hear the faint tap-tap of a tapping drum around the outside of the castle. He is also seen as an omen of the castle is about to become under attack. His full-bodied apparition was seen in 1650 before Oliver Cromwell attacked the castle. While walking along the esplanade below the castle, many visitors have claimed to hear the faint sound of screaming. The sound is believed to be that from witches who were burned at the stake. A time slip also occurs in the area. Many people have claimed to see Janet Douglas, Lady of Glames, being burned at the stake. If you remember, I talked about her in the history portion. Some people who have come to this area feel like they themselves were being scorched with fire. Inside the castle, there have been reports of a lot of activity, but it's also usual activity, such as shadow figures, cold spots, phantom footsteps, and many disembodied voices. With just how old the structure is and the fortresses that have been there before the main castle, I think it's too hard to pinpoint exactly who most of the phantom footsteps and disembodied voices are. Downstairs in the dungeon, however, is a different story. There is a ghost known as the Dung Prisoner. The story goes that a prisoner tried to hide in a pile of manure. His thought was that when the servants came to clean out the dung heap, 
they would haul it down the Royal Mile and he himself could escape to freedom. However, his plan did not go as well as he hoped, because when it came time to clear out the dung heap, it was heaved over the castle walls and he was thrown to his death. Today, visitors claim to smell a foul odor of dung that follows them around the battlements. Others blame him for a ghostly presence that tries to push you off the battlements when you are walking along the top. I feel really bad for that guy. How would you like to go about your ghost life being known as the dung prisoner? That just sucks. In the 17th century, tunnels were found underneath the castle. Many believe that one of the main tunnels led to the Holyrood Palace at the end of the Royal Mile. The thought was that during an attack, the royal family could escape throughout the tunnel to the palace and then escape the city. But no one really knew for sure. To find out just where the tunnels led, someone decided it was a good idea to send a small boy through the tunnels to see if he could find one that led to the Holyrood Palace. The boy was told to consistently play bagpipes as he walked through the tunnels so people could follow the sound and map out where the tunnels led from above. For a while, it seemed to work, when suddenly the pipe stopped somewhere near the site of Tornkirk. Tornkirk is a church that is today a landmark on the Royal Mile. Men sent search parties down to find the boy, but he was never seen again. It was like he completely vanished. His body has never been recovered. The city council was so upset by the disappearance of the boy that they ordered the tunnels to be sealed. Reports of hearing a single bagpipe being played underneath the castle and the Royal Mile still continue to this day. Wow, that was a fun episode to make. I hope that you all enjoyed that crazy history lesson. There is so much more to this amazing city that I was just not able to cover. I hope I did Edinburgh justice, even though I'm sure I mispronounced the name about a million times. I hope that you guys enjoyed this episode. Thanks for hanging out with me and learning all about this amazing place. Don't forget to like me on Facebook, Instagram, and Twitter so we can all hang out. Also, go ahead and add me on my Facebook group page so we can all become a big historically haunted family. It is Historically Haunted group page, and that's how you find me. So I hope that you guys have an amazing couple of weeks. I'll see you guys right back here next time. Stay healthy, my friends. See you soon. Thank you.